We turn now to the scriptures, to a place where we can center our thoughts on the word of the Lord. Let us listen for the word of the Lord in our midst right now. The gospel reading comes from the book of Mark chapter 10. James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came forward to Jesus and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What is it you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. But Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? They replied, we are able. Then Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. When the ten heard this, they began to be angry with James and John. So Jesus called them and said to them, You know that among the Gentiles, those whom they recognize as their rulers lord it over them, and their great ones are tyrants over them. But it is not so among you. But whoever wishes to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wishes to be first among you must be slave of all. For the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Last week in his sermon, Alec mentioned professor and researcher Brene Brown, who studies, among other things, vulnerability and shame. This week on social media, Brown linked to an article from the Your Money column of the New York Times. It was titled, For True Freedom, Learn to Deal with Uncertainty. In the column, the author, Carl Richards, describes the financial choices that a certain man made in the late 2000s and mid-2000s. These financial choices seemed smart at the time, but then when 2008 rolled around and the bottom dropped out of the market, this man was left in debt, trying to juggle the web of consequences. His income plummeted, his relationship suffered, He struggled with feelings of shame and stupidity. His decisions seemed so irresponsible in hindsight. How could he ever forgive himself? Over the next few years, he did work on forgiving himself. He took responsibility. He made some good financial choices. He got out of debt. He worked on healing his relationships and getting back to solid mental uh, footing. He took steps to avoid repeating earlier mistakes. Halfway through the column, Richards, the author, confesses he is the guy in the story. It is hard for him to admit this. He feels shame about the past. He writes, I have asked myself over and over again, what did I do wrong to deserve the bad experiences? 
And then, more recently, what did I do right to deserve the good experiences? And then he points out, notice how loaded my language is with the emphasis on whether and when I was deserving. We humans do this all the time. We decide that we must have done something to deserve this life experience. It is either all our fault or to all our credit that we end up in certain situations. Richard goes on to state that after many conversations with friends, he realizes we need to be careful when we look back at our stories. I can't define exactly what I did to deserve the bad stuff or to deserve the good stuff. As I carefully reflect on the good and the bad, I have come to the conclusion that in both cases, I was simply doing the best I could with the limited knowledge and experience I had at the time. This is tough to face. This is a truth we do not want to face. Indeed, I wonder if sometimes we would prefer to beat ourselves up for our stupid decisions, because it means that when something good happens, we can then give ourselves all the credit. Richard continues in the article saying, we need to let go of the idea that we deserve any specific outcome from life. We're certainly not free of personal responsibility, but we need to not tell ourselves that if we plan carefully enough, we can achieve certainty about what will happen. This is a myth. In reality, life is irreducibly uncertain. And he describes his aha moment about this saying, I said to my friend, based on my past experiences, if you fast forward five years, I could end up homeless or own a private jet or anything in between. And my friend replied, yes. And if you can get yourself to accept that, you'll finally be free. I don't know if Richards, the author of the column, is religious. I don't know if he attends church or read our Bible passages for this week. But I do know that he is speaking a truth that Mark and Job illustrate, a truth that we Christians try to claim week in and week out. We want to believe that we deserve certain outcomes. However, if we face ourselves honestly, we realize we do not deserve anything more than some other people. But then we turn to God, and we realize that God still wants to be with us, no matter how undeserving we are. Christ still invites us to follow him and work with him. Uncertainty isn't appealing. James and John, the disciples, show us this in this passage. They've been following along behind Jesus for a while now, and they are not quite sure where he is heading, but he is drawing bigger and bigger crowds, he is making some very pointed political statements. He is talking about new kingdoms and new rulers. This is exciting stuff to witness, to hear. The disciples probably were ready for some real action rather than just walking and talking and the occasional healing miracle. They are ready to get this rebellion moving to overthrow the Roman government, perhaps. So James and John probably sidle up to Jesus at the end of another long day. 
because they don't like the ongoing uncertainty. They want to know that they've made a good investment with their time and their energy. They're ready to get this thing nailed down, and they have no idea what that actually means. They don't know what they're asking when they approach Jesus. For indeed, James and John are asking to be seated at Jesus' right and left hand in glory, and with this image, they're calling upon the image of a royal ruler who sits enthroned, lifted up, with advisors flanking him on either side. The disciples are picturing riches and glory and political authority and influence. Jesus says, you do not know what you are asking. For indeed, Jesus is going to be lifted up, but in a very different way than the disciples expect. He will be lifted up on a cross, and those on his left and his right will be criminals. Many of the disciples will have fled in that moment. You don't know what you're asking, Jesus says, and he refers to the cup he will receive the cup he will later beg be taken from his lips at the Garden of Gethsemane. And he mentions baptism, perhaps knowing that the only waters that will be present in that moment will be the water that pours from his side when he is pierced with a spear. This will not be a scene of glory and power. This will be a scene of humiliation and abandonment. Jesus has referred to his death several times before. The disciples have been given clues, but still they do not figure out what is coming. They do not know what they are asking. And so when Jesus says, are you able to follow me to do these things? The disciples respond right away, very quickly and simply. Oh yes, yes, we are able. Early Christians must have heard this and winced. What ignorance, what flippancy. James and John have no idea what they're getting into. The disciples are going to flee from Jesus later in the garden. Some will end up at the crucifixion, but many more will hide, wanting to stay out of the way. And after Jesus' death, they themselves, the disciples, will be ostracized and persecuted These disciples are facing so much that they don't know, and yet they so quickly respond, oh yes, we are able. So it's interesting to note what comes next. Does Jesus rebuke them, laugh at them, cast them off? No, indeed, Jesus tries, keeps trying to teach them. For Jesus knows that they eventually will live out the very truth that they pretend they understand right now. Death and humiliation and persecution will happen to some of them. And in the meantime, Jesus will try to teach them what it means to follow him, how it means being humbled, becoming as a slave, serving, not putting oneself up as more deserving than others. It's hard, but we must admit that we don't know what we are doing or asking all the time. We must admit that we, like the disciples, would rather answer quickly, without hesitation. Yes, we are able, because we do not want to let on that we might not be up to the task. 
We idolize ability so much in our society. No one is allowed to not be able in the workplace or the home life. All of us are supposed to be high-functioning in every aspect. But as one scholar pointed out, what's wrong with not being able? Do we always have to be able all the time? Indeed, in our world today, woe to anyone who admits that they might need some help, especially if they are a politician, that they might not be able to do something all on their own. And as for those who have unavoidable intellectual and physical disabilities, well, we often avoid them or shuffle them off to the side, not wanting to be reminded of our own disabilities, wanting to put them in a other category, different from us. And yet, when we are honest, how many of us are fully able, all on our own, to handle all the uncertainties of life? When we read these texts, we realize that much is happening beyond the disciples' comprehension, beyond their vision of the future. They are not able to fully understand at the time. Like Richards, they are facing a world that is irreducibly uncertain. And that is hard. This is why it is helpful to turn back to the words we heard from Job. The book of Job is a great book about uncertainty, about suffering, about what God is doing when bad things happen to good people. For by all accounts, even God's, Job is good he is righteous, but in the 37 chapters that precede the ones we heard, sad and horrible things have happened to Job. He has lost almost everything. And so we have heard Job lament about his losses, and his friends over and over again try to determine what he did to deserve those losses. They keep saying, surely you did something that made God angry something to deserve this. And Job keeps insisting that he hasn't. He was meticulous in his religious observances. He is certain that he deserves better than this. And so we hear that God is answering Job out of the whirlwind. God is responding after being silent for nearly 38 chapters. And out of the whirlwind, the words come, who is this that darkens counsel? by words without knowledge. Or to paraphrase, who is asking questions that they don't understand? And God proceeds to respond to Job with questions more and more piled on top, images pouring forth, images about the water skins of heaven and the foundations of the earth, about morning stars singing and the ravens crying out, these poetic words paint a picture of a world that is so full and rich and fascinating. God is responding to Job's questions with energy and force, but God, like Jesus, is not casting Job away for his questions. God and Jesus in these texts do not rebuke the humans or condemn them. They do not ignore the questions or say, I'm done with you, silly humans. Instead, they say firmly, you want to question me? Okay, fine. Sit down and shut up for a moment. Listen and look at the world that I'm about to show you. 
The book of Job is remarkable for its beauty. In fact, these chapters contain some of the most beautiful poetry in the whole Bible. But these questions from God are also remarkable for where they ask us to focus. For indeed, they do not focus on humans. Humans are clearly only one part of a vast world teeming with wonders. God is painting on a very large canvas, creating a world that is beautiful, that is wild, that is free. In this God's eye view, yes, there is darkness and predators like lions and ravens. There is even cancer and natural disasters. Bad things don't happen because God has abandoned the world or because some are less deserving. Bad things happen because God has created a world that has boundaries, but within those boundaries, it is a world that is wild and free and abundant with many things happening to many different people. This world does not run as a machine. There is so, so much more going on than we can originally imagine. Like the disciples, Job asks questions that are not answered in the way that he wants. Because whether we admit it or not, we'd much rather have a creation that operated like a predictable machine for our benefit. After all, when Jesus speaks, would it not be easier if we knew exactly what he meant? Instead of some of these riddles and stories, we would much rather be able to say, well, if I do this, then I know that this will happen over here. And if I choose to align myself with these people, well, then I know I'm on the right side of Jesus. Certainty, clear answers, the sense that the whole creation is revolving around us, this is appealing. This is what Job and the disciples think that they want. And yet, do we really want such certainty, such predictions? This is what God and Jesus ask us to confront. If James and John had known exactly what was coming, perhaps they wouldn't have chosen to keep following Jesus even as far as Jerusalem. And if we get clear certainty about what we're doing in life, about where we are heading, what would our reaction be? Perhaps we would feel freed. However, I wonder if we would feel even more paralyzed than before. Without mystery and wonder, without the chance to be awed and amazed by our days, why would we get out of bed in the morning? When we demand certain answers, Jesus looks at us and says, Ah, friends, you do not know what you ask. And God says, Listen and look. There is more going on here than you realize. And so we are put in our place, and we see that we occupy only a small portion of the vast work of creation. And yet with this God's eye view of the world, we are not left on our own. Instead, God in the Old Testament and Jesus in the New Testament are talking with us they are, they are both responding to the questions, engaging in conversation, choosing to listen and then ask us to listen and return. God still chooses to be in relationship with us over and over again, even if we do not deserve it. God knows we have so many questions. Christ knows we have so many questions. 
But we should not let the uncertainty of the future hold us back from seeking what is already happening, what is already happening right now in the present, what the Spirit is already doing right now in the world. Despite our uncertainty and our undeserving, God wants to work with us and through us, through our passions and delights, through our tithes and our resources, through our abilities and our disabilities. After all, we cannot measure our own ability and deserving. There is no rubric that will tell us how everything is going to turn out. But after all, what is wrong with uncertainty? What's wrong with not being able? Perhaps it is uncertainty that brings us to gather together here today and try to help each other expand our view of creation. Perhaps our uncertainty allows us to come and admit the ways we aren't actually able to do things on our own. Our uncertainty brings us into a place where we realize Christ is listening to our questions. And so maybe we can take time to listen in return. And maybe, just maybe, we'll be able to become amazed and awed by creation, by what God is doing all over again. Let us pray. Lord, this is your world, and we are some of your many beautiful creatures, beloved, named, and claimed. Help us to look and to listen and to follow you, to follow you out into the world, out into your creation today. Amen.